This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. Welcome into Thursday, August 4th, 2022. This is the Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson. Glad to have you here between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern every single weekday. Thank you for listening. If you don't know me or you're just getting accustomed to the program, welcome. I'm the political editor at townhall.com and a Fox News contributor. On tap today, Katie Pavlich, Katie McFarland, Will Kane, and Larry Kudlow. Plus so much more. You do not want to miss a minute of the show. If you happen to miss any of it live, we have a podcast. It is free on demand every day. No charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. Everything right there. GuyBensonShow.com. Or you can also follow us on social media at GuyBensonShow, Twitter and Instagram. We begin the show here with a Fox News alert. The Biden administration has now officially declared monkeypox to be a public health emergency as cases have been doubling, I read, roughly every seven to eight days. We talked about monkeypox a little bit last week and some of the debates around stigma and what is fair to say and what the role of public health officials ought to be. I think the role should be to communicate clearly and accurately and not worry about political considerations or political correctness. But there's a lot of confusion out there around monkeypox because people don't want to stigmatize the LGBT community. I'm a member of that community, so I think I can talk about this a little bit. Like, oh, we don't want to make it a gay disease. I understand that anyone can get it if you come in contact with a lesion, skin-to-skin contact. That's true. It's not only gay men or bisexual men or men who have sex with men at risk. But if you look at the numbers, overwhelmingly, that is who's at risk, which is why the vaccine, which is extremely scarce, more on that in a moment, is being rightly limited to people in a pretty narrow category. And I don't think that it's wrong to simply tell the truth about that, to prioritize care and vigilance for certain people and not freak out a bunch of other people. That seems sensible to me. Now, I will tell you, I was very angry about this earlier today, and I still am. And I decided to lead with this because let me say this as succinctly and bluntly as I can. The Biden administration is blowing it on monkeypox. This is a guy who sat in his basement and promised to defeat the virus and end the virus on COVID. We can talk more about that later if we want to. And now on his watch, another public health emergency has emerged. Not his fault. I'm not a hack. I'm not going to blame Biden or his team for this type of virus coming to the fore and spreading. What I will blame them for 
is abject incompetence in responding to it. And we have example after example piling up. And I think if this were a Republican administration screwing up this badly over and over again on a public health issue, it would be a much bigger story than it is. Especially given the fact that it is overwhelmingly targeting gay and bisexual people. You can almost imagine what the outcry would sound like and look like. You'd have activists, you'd have the media, you'd have Democrats. This administration doesn't care about gay people. They don't care about our lives. They don't prioritize us. This is callous disregard. This is dereliction. This is bigotry. This is what modern bigotry looks like, right? That is what they would be saying if exactly this set of facts applied to the other political party. But I think because Biden and team are Democrats, a lot of the critiques are muted or non-existent. You're hearing it from some people. Because it is a real and acute problem and a growing problem, there's a way to stop the problem, and Team Biden is blowing it. And they've been blowing it for weeks. And if all the other gatekeepers of truth and the firefighters of media aren't going to level with you about that, we will. I will. Last week when we talked about this, I mentioned this New York Post story from early July. Here's a snippet. The White House is allowing red tape to snarl delivery of a million monkeypox vaccine doses currently stuck at the manufacturing plant in Denmark. The U.S. government spent at least two billion dollars, our money, taxpayer money, two billion plus developing and manufacturing the vaccine for the national stockpile. However, The Food and Drug Administration, FDA, and this administration has refused to import the shots, a million of them, after it failed to inspect the plant and then refused to accept the inspection results from the EU's regulatory arm, which deemed the facility safe. So there's a million shots that we developed and paid for sitting in Denmark. This was as of early last month. And FDA couldn't be bothered, apparently, dropped the ball, couldn't get its act together, to inspect the facility, the warehouse, whatever it is, the plant. So because of the red tape and, you know, all the paperwork, oh, I guess we'll just have to leave those doses there. And the EU said, actually, we'll do the inspection. It is safe. These shots are going into arms of European men. And our administration said, no, not good enough. This is what bureaucracy looks like and failure. So that was a month ago. Here's a story from the Washington Post this week. Don't expect America's shortage of monkeypox vaccine to ease anytime soon. On Saturday, the Washington Post reported there is currently only enough supply of the two-dose monkeypox vaccine to fully vaccinate about one-third of the gay and bisexual men in the U.S. who are considered highest risk for the virus. And listen to this. More doses aren't expected to arrive aren't expected to arrive in the United States until at least October. So months from now, there are now over 6,000 confirmed cases in the United States, and there's been exponential growth. And we don't have nearly enough vaccine doses. And the next batch of doses apparently isn't going to arrive in the United States, despite all the money that we have paid as taxpayers to develop this, 
It's not going to arrive until at least October, which experts fear may give the virus all the time it needs to become permanently established in the country, i.e. endemic. If the government was operating at any level of competence and had prioritized this, we wouldn't be necessarily talking about this becoming permanently established monkeypox as, I would say, effectively an STD that also can be transmitted other ways in the United States. If we had gotten the return on our investment in a successful vaccine that was then administered properly by a government that wasn't filled with absolute incompetence, we could be having a very different conversation, but we're not. Public health authorities have already begun to ration the vaccine by withholding the second dose. Remember with COVID, you got the first shot, unless it was J&J. You got the first shot, then you went home for a couple of weeks and you came back to get the second one to boost up the, uh, the effectiveness, the efficacy as much as possible. Same drill here on monkeypox, but they have so few doses, they have delayed indefinitely the second shot. Just to give out as many first shots as possible, this is rationing. Pitiful. We are the richest, most powerful country on Earth. Our government has spent billions of our dollars developing this vaccine. And because of their fault, the people who need it can't get it, many of them. And I mean, I just come back to the point. If this set of facts were happening under a Republican right now, the motives would be questioned at a very high decibel. They would be called the face of modern hate. They don't care about this population of people. It would be a much larger scandal than it is. But the scandal is what it is. There just happens to be parentheses D next to the name. So it's all sort of still whispered about for the most part. Then comes this story from the New York Times. Wait for this. The shortage of vaccines to combat a fast-growing monkeypox outbreak was caused in part by the Department of Health and Human Services failing early on to ask that bulk stocks of the vaccine it already owned be bottled for distribution, according to multiple administration officials. So we had the vaccine. We paid for it. It was ours. And HHS in the Biden administration forgot to ask for it to be bottled so it can be sent to the United States and injected into arms. By the time the federal government placed its orders, the vaccine's Denmark-based manufacturer, Bavarian Nordic, had booked other clients and was unable to do the work for months. To speed up deliveries, the government is now scrambling. How often are they scrambling? Scrambling in Afghanistan, scrambling on inflation, scrambling on baby formula, just scrambling all over the place because of their own failures. Well, here they are scrambling again to find another firm to take over some of the bottling and capping and labeling of the frozen bulk vaccine that is being stored in large plastic bags outside of Copenhagen. Because that final manufacturing phase, known as fill and finish, is highly specialized, experts estimate it will take another company at least three months to gear up. August, September, October, we're looking to maybe get into November. One more detail from this story in the New York Times. Health and Human Services, this is the Biden administration, also miscalculated 
the need for vaccines so badly that in May, late May, they allowed this company to deliver about 215,000 fully finished doses that the federal government had already bought to European countries instead of holding them for the U.S. So they didn't do their inspection and wouldn't take the EU inspectors. So that was a million doses sitting over in Europe. Then there were 215,000 fully ready doses that the U.S. government and Biden's team just said, we don't need them. You know what? Give them to Europe. It's fine. Now we have this acute crisis where there is they're calling it a cliff, a vaccine cliff. They will not have enough vaccine for the population that needs it the most. Just they won't won't come close. And we'll have to wait for months as monkeypox as monkeypox grows and spreads and proliferates. And then a bunch of other vaccine that they had ready, they forgot to ask for it to get bottled and labeled. And now they're just casting around, oh, can anyone do this? And the process is going to take months to do that. Absolutely pathetic and outrageous. Now, a lot of the failure falls on the Department of Health and Human Services, HHS. I would like to remind you who is in charge of that cabinet agency. A man named Javier Becerra. We were very critical of this pick at the time. Becerra is a lawyer and a lifelong career politician. He has been in some office, political office, since I was five. I'm in my mid to late 30s now. Since I was in kindergarten, this guy's been some legislature. He was attorney general in California. He's a lawyer by training and a politician by career. Zero public health experience or expertise. None. It would be outrageous to put someone with that experience or lack thereof, that resume, in this position as the health minister of the United States at any point. Under any circumstances, but in the middle of a global pandemic, that's Biden ran on the pandemic. Now, this is the whole thing. We're going to kill and shut down the virus, unlike Trump. Then he comes in and puts in a health secretary with no experience in health, public health or otherwise. None. The guy was known for persecuting nuns and pro-life groups in California. That's his big claim to fame, Javier Becerra. So why was he picked? In the middle of a pandemic, this man, CNBC reported at the time, late 2020, Biden's selection of Becerra comes amid calls from the Congressional Hispanic Caucus for the president-elect to include more Hispanics among his cabinet picks. Biden has made diversity a central value of his incoming administration. Becerra would be the first Latino to lead the department. So the woke, identity-fixated, obsessed leftists were saying this cabinet needs to be more diverse. We need more brown people. This is how they talk about people, literally by their skin color. We need more brown people in the cabinet. And Biden's like, go find someone with a Latin X last name and put him in charge of the health department. What could go wrong? So they found, I guess, the closest Latin X person to use their ridiculous term that they could find, with no expertise, and they put him in charge of HHS. How's that working out? How's that competence going for the American people? It wasn't just Biden who named him. It was the Senate Democrats who confirmed him. That's Javier Becerra, our health secretary, 
failing during COVID, no experience whatsoever. Now there's another big problem on his watch, and his administration is asleep at the switch. His agency is failing and flailing badly. The LGBT community is in the crosshairs of this disease. And this is what's happening. Mistake after failure after screw-up. But, hey, at least the White House projected rainbow colors onto the White House during Pride Month. Doesn't that make you feel better? The signaling was very strong about their support when it comes to helping the well-being and the health of gay and bisexual men in this country with this mess on our hands. They're just sort of like, oops, I guess we got that one wrong again with our health secretary who has no business being in that position. It is absolutely outrageous, and you know and I know that this would be a much bigger story and would be treated as the scandal that it is under slightly different circumstances. But the reality is what it is. I'm Guy Benson. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it... A real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm Guy Benson. I mentioned COVID during my opening monologue. We have this HHS secretary, uh, secretary, Javier Becerra, with no qualifications to be in the job. He was put there in the middle of a pandemic. And we have hundreds of thousands of deaths in America from or with COVID since Biden took office. Now, do I blame Biden and Becerra for those deaths? More deaths, by the way, than happened on Trump's watch? I don't because I'm not a hack. I'm not dishonest. And I'm also not Joe Biden. Remember this? Cut 16 from the 2020 campaign. 220,000 Americans dead. You hear nothing else I say tonight. Hear this. Anyone who's responsible for not taking control, in fact, not saying I'm, I take no responsibility initially, anyone who's responsible for that many deaths should not remain as president of the United States of America. When Biden took office, the death toll was about 400,000. It's now over a million. And he was handed three vaccines when he took office with hundreds of thousands of shots going into arms every single day. That's what he inherited. And since then, hundreds of thousands of people have died. More than 600,000 people have died. By his own standard, he should not remain president of the United States. And putting someone, a career politician, lawyer, non-doctor, non-health expert in charge of HHS in the middle of all of it, it's just completely indefensible and just crickets from most people in the media on any of it. I'm not done. We'll be right back on The Guy Benson Show. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. 
His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson. Back on the Guy Benson Show, GuyBensonShow.com, our website. Podcast is always free. And I've been using this monkeypox debacle as a jumping off point to once again shine the spotlight on Joe Biden and his decision to appoint Javier Becerra as our health secretary. Back in the middle of the pandemic, he nominated Becerra, who's a lawyer and a politician. Nothing on the public health front. Put him in charge of the health bureaucracy of the federal government during covid And now they are screwing up badly on monkeypox, which is not terribly troubling to most Americans who aren't at very high risk. But to my community, it is much more concerning and there's not enough vaccine to go around, not because it didn't exist or not because, you know, this was a novel virus, but because of verifiable government failures. And maybe when you put someone in a very important job as a diversity hire, you get what you deserve. The problem is you're playing with people's wellness, their health, their lives. Don't take my word for it. I'm not alleging that Becerra is a diversity hire. It was widely reported. They were under pressure to get more Hispanics in the cabinet, in positions. They're like, all right, grab that congressman and put him in there. He was attorney general of California. He was a congressman, then attorney general of California, fighting nuns in court to try to force them to violate their conscience, persecuting pro-life organizations, trying to force them to advertise for abortion, persecuting investigative journalists who shown the spotlight on certain special interests that the California government wanted to protect, like the abortion lobby. That's what Javier Becerra was up to in California. And because I guess of his last name and the color of his skin, they're like, let's put him in charge of health care in the country with no experience. And there were virtually no questions asked about that at the time. And I think what the Biden team wanted was to get a bunch of hosannas about having the most diverse cabinet of all time. That was the focus. And by the way, I just reject this idea that you can't find an eminently qualified Hispanic person in this position. They just didn't really try that hard. They just wanted to check a box. And if you Google it, like most diverse cabinet, Biden diversity, those types of keywords, you will find a bunch of media outlets clapping along like trained seals because that's what Biden wanted to highlight, diversity. I think diversity and qualifications, diversity and excellence are not mutually exclusive. But when you do it, sloppily with no interest in the important part of it and it's only about identity you end up with someone like javier becerra running hhs and botching badly this crisis this growing crisis but hey they got their news cycle that they wanted back in late 2020 and early 2021 look at the diversity not sure how that helps someone who's been exposed to monkeypox who can't find a vaccine or people who might have to wait until October or beyond to get vaccine, especially gay and bisexual men. But that's why Becerra got the job. There's no real 
argument around that. And yet that's the reality. It's the reality that happened, and it got almost no scrutiny because at the time, at least, the media was in the tank for Biden and the new administration. Obviously, they're all running away from Biden at this point. It's, again, imagine, and I, I know it's like the lowest form of political commentary to say, can you imagine if it were a Republican? But sometimes it's just so glaring right in your face. Same thing. If Donald Trump had put some woefully unqualified person in charge of a crucially important portfolio in the middle of a national crisis, then there was a related type of crisis down the line, and this person screwed that thing up too, especially if it was at least appearing to be at the expense of a marginalized community, I think we might be hearing about that very specifically and very loudly from a lot of people who are biting their tongues or averting their eyes right now. And by the way, Becerra, we brought you on this show, I think it was earlier this year, early 2022, there was a big story written in the Washington Post about the discontent at the White House with Becerra's job performance, how he was like this invisible secretary who wasn't showing up, wasn't doing his job properly, wasn't engaged, maybe because he didn't know what the hell he was doing, because he wouldn't. Why would he? He was a lawyer and politician. Not someone equipped to run a health bureaucracy for the biggest, most important government in in the world in the middle of a giant pandemic that had killed already by that point, by the point he was nominated, hundreds of thousands of Americans with even more who have died since. But it was the White House then whispering to reporters, oh, we don't really like this guy. He's not really doing the job. Like, what do you expect? You have failure after failure. He's not getting it done. It's blindingly obvious to everyone involved, even the people responsible for putting Becerra in there in the first place. They're throwing him under the bus again now on monkeypox, more anonymous quotes about how he's not getting it done. We are seven months, six or seven months removed from the last round of backbiting, and this man is still in that position on the job. They kept him around to screw up even more this time on monkeypox. Is that Becerra's fault or is that Biden and team's fault? And where's the accountability-minded media? I'm just curious. I'll just read a few more passages from this New York Times story that I read during the opening monologue. I gave you some of the details about how the Biden administration just let hundreds of thousands of doses go to Europeans. They're like, oh, we don't need it. Go ahead. Oops. Then there were a bunch of other doses that we had bought and paid for, and they forgot to get it bottled. So we'll have to wait till October or beyond to get it. Another oops. These are the people who believe that government are the solution to everything. All they want to do forever is expand the government, more and more government. And they can't even do the basics of their job properly. And I guarantee you, if this becomes a bigger problem, if they can't avoid this further... If people start to wake up and actually point fingers the way I'm doing, I guarantee you part of their excuse is going to be not enough funding. Right? That's always there. We just need more money. Give us more money and more power, even though the mistakes are just straight up incompetence, human error. Becerra's been out there putting out press releases and showing up at events about abortion because that's what he really cares about, not doing the job That should be the actual gig. 
for which he is absolutely unqualified and always has been. So the Times reports the obstacles to filling and finishing these vials of vaccine follow other missteps that have limited vaccine supply. The United States once had some 20 million doses in a national stockpile, but failed to replenish them as they expired, letting the supply dwindle to almost nothing, which is what we did on PPE, right? During COVID, remember that? That's the same mistakes over and over again. There's a testing problem with monkeypox. That sounds familiar. I guess we just don't learn anything in this country, at least the people in charge. Just dangerously behind the curve constantly. The government also owns the equivalent of about 16.5 million doses of bulk vaccine produced and stored by Bavarian Nordic. By the time the health agency ordered 500,000 doses worth to be vialed in June, other countries with outbreaks had submitted their own orders and the earliest delivery date to the United States was October Another 110,000 doses for European nations soon followed. When the U.S. came back with two more orders of 2.5 million doses each, July 1st and July 15th, the bulk could only be delivered next year. You snooze, you lose. We all paid for this, but we're not getting it because the government just can't do the basics of its job in this administration. Some critics blame a failure of leadership at HHS, saying the department secretary, here he is, Javier Becerra, has taken a hands-off approach to an increasingly serious situation. That sounds so unlike him. No, it's the exact attack they've been making against him from within for half a year, and he just floats right along. Biden never holds anyone accountable. He never fires anyone. On and on we go here. His department oversees all of this stuff. And now finally today, they're like, oh, we're going to declare this an emergency, a public health emergency. Great. That's the headline that they'll get. Maybe that will stave off some criticism for a little while. Look, we're doing something. The things that they should have been doing were proactive and they didn't. And people are going to suffer as a result for months on end. Some federal officials, this is the Times story, say the health department was slow to submit its orders for Vaccine-related work because officials at BARDA argue that they were short on funds. Here we go. Surprise. Short on funds. But when the demand for vaccines became an outcry, and that's just starting, the agency found the money to pay for for 5 million more doses to be vial. Oh, they didn't have the money until they did because the PR started to get bad. They react to headlines and anger on social media as opposed to being adults and knowing how to do their job properly. And by the time they finally snap to it and do something, it's too late. And we have to wait for months, maybe into next year for some of this stuff. Just a bang up job. Some experts say it can take as long as six to nine months for a plant to gear up to handle this type of vaccine. Bravo. Bravo to everyone involved. Where's Secretary Pete on this for the LGBT community, by the way? I mean, he's just handling his stuff great at transportation, I'm sure. Javier Becerra, no expertise, no qualifications, still on the job. And then there's just Grandpa Joe providing, presiding rather over the whole thing. An absolute mess. And at least for now, the outrage and the blame assignment has been relatively scant, and I think we know why. 
It's not based on the job performance, that's for sure. The Guy Benson Show returns after this with Katie Pavlich next. Guy Benson will be right back. I'm Katie Pavlich. You might recognize me from my day job, but I've been bagging big game with my dad since I was 10. Get him, get him, get him, get him! So taking you to the most decked out hunting lodges in America, that's where my two worlds collide. It's time for another weekend at the lodge. Cool gentleman rush. Luxury Hunting Lodges of America, streaming now on Fox Nation. Sign up at foxnation.com. Back on the Guy Benson Show, and you just heard it there. A new show on Fox Nation. You can sign up at foxnation.com. Luxury Hunting Lodges of America, hosted by my friend and colleague, Katie Pavlich. And Katie, this looks, first of all, right up your alley. Very fun. Very cool. What can you tell folks about this new show at Fox Nation? Hey, Guy. Thanks so much for having me on to talk about it. Of course. So to talk about the news of the day in politics, but I was able to get away for four different weekends in different parts of the country to uh, showcase these lodges, to get to know the wildlife, the people, the owners of these places. So it's, you know, we went to a bunch of different spots to figure out, you know, what was interesting and unique about each different location. We were in Louisiana, Oregon, Wyoming, Montana, and it was just really great for me because, as you know, I grew up hunting and camping with my family, and uh, this was a great opportunity to kind of push together, you know, kind of the glamping aspect of staying in a nice luxury lodge. And if, you know, you're not into the outdoor part of it, maybe you'd rather stay inside. You can do cooking lessons or go to the spa, or if you want to get get out and do some ice fishing or some horseback riding, maybe some alligator hunting, uh, you can do that. So it was just a really great time and opportunity, and I loved it. And it was nice to be able to highlight the unique conservation efforts each one of these lodges and their owners have put into their property, you know, their private land. Um, the, the place we went to in Wyoming is called Three Forks Ranch, and it's actually the largest private restoration of a river in the history of the country. So it was just really interesting to see all the different aspects of these places that offer wonderful vacations for families. And although they are grandiose, they are very welcoming and uh, enjoy having people back time and time again. Well, you should bring me next time, and you can do all the outdoor stuff, and I will happily be at the spa and at the bar. And maybe maybe a cooking class doesn't sound too bad. I think that's a very fair division of labor, if you will, on our next uh, yeah. joint vacation at one of these places. How did you pick these four locations? Because there's beautiful spots all over the country. How do you narrow it down to these four? Well, I think it was really difficult. So I had a great team of producers who scoured the country for the four best places we could go to for the first season, hopefully crossing our fingers that maybe there'll be a second one. Um, But we really wanted to take a look at different parts of the country and different, you know, aspects of these lodges. So they're all very different from each other. You know, Louisiana was very different from Oregon. Louisiana was in a swamp, um, had a different kind of Cajun history. Uh, We were hunting alligators, which are overpopulated in that area, whereas in Highland Hills, we were hunting on property that used to be used for farming and agriculture and now is used for upland bird hunting, and they've restored the property there for that use. And they work with the state uh, to kind of manage 
you know, the populations there. So it really was just a matter of finding a, a place that had a luxury lodge with these amazing accommodations for people who may not be necessarily hunters, um, but also to accommodate those who are in families where people like to do different things. So lots of different outdoor activities. You know, in Louisiana, we weren't just alligator hunting. We got to take a sunset cruise and have a nice glass of wine while the sunset while the sun went down. So all these different places are, you know, in the theme, obviously, of luxury lodging and outdoor lifestyle. Um, but each one is, is different enough from each other that people will be interested in watching them all. You made a lot of cool memories during the process of making this show for Fox Nation. Is there one thing that comes to mind? It doesn't have to be like the top thing, but one interaction or one adventure that you had over the course of this show that you think people might find intriguing? Well, you'll you'll see in the Wyoming episode, the way that we had to film it, it was it was pretty cold. And if you look at what I'm wearing, you'll notice that right before we went out, out, out ice fishing, I have on like a headband, a beanie, and then earmuffs over my ears. And then when we're out, you know, actually going ice fishing, our guide, who is just this amazing woman, she does have gloves on. So I felt like kind of like a wimp a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> you are yeah. rarely the yeah. wimpy person involved, but this woman sounds pretty hardcore. She was pretty hardcore. So there were just there were a lot of amazing moments, and I had a great team, great production crew, um, and we really got to travel to a lot of these different places. And talking to the owners, especially, was really uh, special for me to hear about how they were able to obtain these dream properties that they really wanted for their entire lives, and now they've spent so much time, you know, rehabbing the land and respecting the wildlife. Oh, yeah. And all that kind of thing, engaging in real well, conservation that is lots of the time demonized or not spoken about enough. No, it looks really cool, and they're plugging the hell out of it on Fox News Channel, which is awesome to see. It's Fox Nation. You can get it exclusively there. Sign up if you aren't already a subscriber. Sign up there at foxnation.com. And, Katie, at some point we're going to have to talk about how you were able to successfully pitch this because I have a few ideas of my own, like perhaps <laughs> America's most opulent country clubs. Like, I think I could very well handle that assignment or like the best first class airplane seats in the world with Guy Benson. I'm, yeah, I'm workshopping a few things. <laughs> we'll have to talk. Let's talk offline. That's Katie Pavlich. Check out Luxury Hunting Lodges of America exclusively at Fox Nation. When we come back, another hour of the Guy Benson show, KT McFarland on foreign policy, plus Will Kane and more straight ahead. Stay with us. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's a brand new hour on this Friday on the Guy Benson Show. Glad you are here each and every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern and around the clock on demand for free on our podcast. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. FoxNewsPodcast.com, another option, or wherever you get your podcasts. At Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. You can check us out on social media. In my role here at Fox on the TV side, I'll be joining Media Buzz this coming Sunday morning with Howie Kurtz and then Trey Gowdy's show in the evening, also on Sunday, both of those programs on Fox News Channel. Fox News Alert. As we begin the hour, the Dow surges big time today. Up 658 points at the close, ending at 31,288. 
Here's our phone number at the Guy Benson Show, 833-456-1300. 833-456-1300. Sometimes we'll put out a call topic, and it'll be a little slow. A few calls trickle, and we get rolling, and then there's a flood of calls. Not today. The lines are packed already. All of our lines are full, but keep trying. 833-456-1300. And here's the question. President Trump, the former president, in an interview has said he's already decided, he's made up his mind whether he's going to run in 2024. And he very heavily hinted that he is going to run, and the only decision left is whether to announce now, before the midterm elections, or after. So I asked you, should he run in 24? I believe he should not. That's my position, just to be transparent. If he does run, or you do want him to, should he announce it before or after the midterms? With my position being, if he's going to do it, I'd prefer him to announce later after the midterms and make November completely a referendum on the Democrats. What do you think? 833-456-1300. The phones are busy, so let's get started with Paul in California, who is up first. Paul, welcome. I think my dream scenario would be, yes, he runs, he announces after the midterms, He absorbs all the vitriol and hate from the left and then at the last minute pulls out, leaving the way clear for DeSantis or whoever the front runner is. Oh, interesting. He he doesn't have the moral character or the self-sacrificial nature to do that, but that's what I'd love to see. So so take all the, you know, slings and arrows for a while, suck up the oxygen, then not actually go through with it. And then it's someone else. Interesting, Paul. A very intriguing start to the caller topic today. Thanks for that. 833-456-1300. Let's see. Mac is in Virginia. You're up next. Mac, thank you for listening. Yep. Uh, I want to see him run uh, in 2024. He should announce after the uh, the midterms because, you know, basically let the guys um, run on their own platform. Uh, so that's what I see happening. I think Trump uh, is a good president. I like his policies. It's just his bad thing is to wish he just control his mouth. That's his worst enemy. And then yeah, I think you... that if uh, Trump and DeSantis would be an awesome uh, candidate Ticket? for – Yeah, a ticket. Thank you. All right. Well, that's interesting, Mac. And, you know, the Trump's mouth gets him into trouble. It also got him where he is. Right. So there's a double edged sword there. A lot of people who like Trump say, I wish he would dial it back. But he is what he is. And we know what he is. And he's not going to change in his late 70s. So that's something I think people need to think about. But, Mac, I think a lot of people share the perspective that you just brought here. Thank you for the call. 833-456-1300. Let's go all the way to Hawaii and Cynthia. Aloha, Cynthia. Thanks for listening. Aloha. I voted for Trump twice. I would vote him for a third time, but I believe there are others as strong as he, and um, he has too much baggage, and these people do not have as much baggage. So I would rather he did not run, and if he does announce, I'd wish it to be after midterms. Okay, that makes sense. So in other words, you wouldn't really mind to see him as president again, but you think that there might be better people to run in 2024. Is that roughly correct? Correct. Without the baggage he has, yes. Got it. All right, Cynthia, in Hawaii, glad you're out there and listening. Appreciate the call. 833-456-1300. 
Toll-free, direct here to the Guy Benson Show. What do you think? Trump 2024, yay, nay? If he's going to go for it, should he wait to announce or do it now? 833-456-1300. Let's go to John in Atlanta in extra territory. John, welcome. Uh, thank you. Yeah, I think you should run definitely. I think after the midterms, and I think this country is going to be in worse shape than we've ever been in. And some baggage is good. This guy has done it all before, and there are bad people out there in this world who are getting ready to fight. I think we need somebody that's done it before and can prove they can get the job done. Running for office doesn't mean you can do the job. So let me ask you, John, just a quick follow-up. You think he should announce after the midterm elections, not before. Why? Why do you want him to wait? I, I think the clatter and the noise, just like you're saying, is too much. I think we've got good points to win the Congress and possibly the Senate without him and going into any kind of election collusion, any kind of Russian stuff. And um, I think we can do it on our own without him being in the way, actually. Got it. Got it. Okay. All right, John. Thanks for the candor. Thanks for that perspective. 833-456-1300. 833-456-1300. How are we feeling about this, folks? Let's see. New York City. Rebecca is up next. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, I think that it would be a good idea if he did run, but I don't think so. I think what he has to do is be like Obama and work behind the scenes. So you want him to sort of be a kingmaker within Republican politics, working behind the scenes but not running again? Right. Okay. All right. Thanks, Rebecca. 833-456-1300. He could be a kingmaker. Right? He could very much help someone else be president. Does he have that in him is he willing to do that i don't know 833-456-1300 linda calling all the way am i seeing this correctly from france linda are you calling from france yes i am oh well thank you for doing that what do you think about this i am well i listen to you all the time all right i'll already tell you so i voted for trump the past two elections the reason why i did it was because i wanted it to be against the cast basically the system I wanted to shake it up, and I wanted to see somebody that actually had business experience do something. However, I do not want to see him run again. Why? For many reasons. Are you still there? Um, Yeah, because there's a lot of baggage, and he's created a lot of that for himself. But the thing is, is that what I actually – and the only way we're going to get him to not do this – is to entice him into something that's going to be humiliating to his worst enemy. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, that's some of the games I guess you might have to play. But, Linda, I think there's a lot of Trump voters out there, two-time Trump voters, who agree with you, which is why I think this is such a fascinating question, and we're getting such a massive response here in the calls. And thank you for listening over in Europe. That is awesome, Linda. 833-456-1300. Let's see here. Adam in Jacksonville, Florida. Let's go to the northern part of the Sunshine State. Adam, hello. Hi, how's it going? Yes, I want Trump to go for it again. Uh, I think he's got what it takes. He's already proven himself. But I think I definitely don't want a teleprompter president. Uh, And as far as I think you should wait till the dust settles uh, with this midterm. Do you want to kind of stay out of the way until you know, uh, November, end of November, even early next year, if he's going to do it? Yes. Yeah, he shouldn't say anything, keeps his mouth shut. 
if he were to run again, Adam, would you be a locked-in supporter of his no matter what, or would you give consideration to some of the other Republicans in the primary? I think that I am totally 100 uh, percent. I think he needs a rematch, and he was setting this country right the first four years, and I think he's got another four years to do it uh, just to correct the okay. wrongs that were made. All right, so he's a Trump guy through and through. Adam, thank you for listening. Thanks for being here. 833-456-1300. On we go to Connecticut. Waterbury, Aaron, welcome to the Guy Benson Show. Hi. No, I would not like like to see him run again. I voted for him in 16 and in 20. I thank him for everything that he's done, but I think I agree with the baggage. And also, he can only run for one term, and we are in such turmoil, one term is not going to do it. Oh, interesting, because he would be term limited at that point. That That's a perspective, actually, I hadn't really thought about in this context, but I'm glad you brought it up. I'm glad you called another two-time Trump voter. Thank you, sir, but let's move on. And we're getting sort of this back and forth down the middle here. Yes, he should run or no, he shouldn't. I'm seeing almost everyone saying he should wait to run or to announce that he's going to run. I haven't seen almost anyone on the board who wants him to announce soon. 833-456-1300. Let's go to Pennsylvania, the Keystone State. Bryce, hello. Hey, Guy, this is Bryce. Yeah, I um, hey. I think, hey, hey, I'd like to see him uh, run again from a policy standpoint, obviously from a public relations standpoint. Um, you know, he wasn't our finest speaking president, but um, I, I really think uh, we could, you know, amend some of that, honestly, if we had something like a, a wild card, like Ivanka uh, kind of run and carry his policy, but in a little bit prettier package. Interesting. Are there other people not named Trump? Because in my mind, Ivanka is a little bit left for my personal taste as a conservative. Are there other people out there who might run that you'd at least consider? Or it sounds oh, like you'd yeah. be open to shopping around. Yeah, open. I mean, uh, Donald Trump Jr. would be a good one. Uh, I mean, obviously, DeSantis is a, is a top runner there. So uh, All right. the combination All right, Bryce. would be pretty good. Well, thanks. Thanks for listening out there in Pennsylvania. We do appreciate it. 833-456-1300. Interesting calls. And the moment a call comes off the board... The phone starts ringing again. You all have thoughts on this. 833-456-1300. Let's see. Uh, Anthony in California. Anthony, what do you think about this? Um, yeah, I think he should run. I, um, we need to have Trump in the office. I, I, I was hoping that he would run back in the 80s when, you know, in 90s. And I've always been watching him, and I thought we'd need a businessman. We need somebody who would come in and um, shake things up and, and – do the right thing. Do the business thing. Do something so that's he, good for he, the country. Anthony, if he were to run again in 2024, do you care if he announces sooner or later, before or after the midterms? Do you have a thought on that? I think he should definitely – after the after the November elections. Got it. Okay. All right, Anthony. 833-456-1300. Let's take a quick break. Calls are just pouring in here to The Guy Benson Show. 833-456-1300. Should Trump run? Do you want to see him run again for president? And if he's going to do it, should he announce sooner or should he wait till after the midterm elections? More of your calls straight ahead. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. It's the Guy Benson Show. Our toll-free number here, 833-456-1300. If 
Former President Donald Trump telling a reporter this week that he has made up his mind whether he's going to run or not for the presidency again. And then hinted that the answer is yes. And his only real choice now is whether he's going to announce before the midterms or after. The question for you is, do you want him to run? Do you want to support him again in 2024? Do you want it to be someone else? And if he's going to run, when when should he announce on the timeline? 833-456-1300. The phones are packed. Diane, Staten Island, New York. Welcome. Hi. Um, in answer to your question, I voted for him twice. I loved him. I loved his policies. However, it's time to change the guard. He brings too much baggage with him, and I'm afraid we're going to have another four years of the same thing, and, and, and I just I don't think that it's good for the country at this point. I think Ron DeSantis is, is a much better option because he's a lot like him. I mean, if Trump is the candidate, I would vote for him, but I really hope that he doesn't run. I'm hoping that his ego says, man, you might lose again. Don't run again. And right. I, if he is going to run, I hope he announces it after the midterms. Good call, Diane. Very succinct, thought through position. Many of you agree. Many of you disagree. 833-456-1300. Let's find someone who disagrees. In fact, Lawrence is in Atlanta listening on Extra, our affiliate down there. Hi, Lawrence. How are you doing? Very well. Thank you. I think Trump should run again. He should wait until after the midterms to announce it. And the perfect scenario would be Trump-Santez ticket. DeSantis ticket. Trump would get four years. After his four years, DeSantis would get eight years. Easy. All right, Lawrence. In Atlanta, appreciate the call. Thank you for listening. 833-456-1300. Scott in Maryland in the DMV. You're up, Scott. Thanks for taking the call. Um, I thought your analysis was excellent. I do not think that he should run. He was the right person probably at the right time when he uh, ran in 16. Uh, He should not run, but if he decides to run, it should definitely be after the midterms. I'd rather see him decide not to run, endorse DeSantis, be a rainmaker for the party, and then you've got potentially two terms or eight years with DeSantis. All right, Scott in Maryland, appreciate it. Thanks for the call. 833-456-1300, just blowing through these calls. Want to hear from as many of you as possible. The phone's going crazy, lighting up. Chris, St. Louis, Missouri. Hi, Chris. Hello. Hi. Hi. Glad to hear, glad to talk to you here. Um, I'm not as together verbally and, and mentally as everybody else is. It's called in. I'm all over the place, whether we should, whether we shouldn't. I'm surrounded by everyone in doctrine here in St. Louis with family and friends. I lost a lot of friends over that the last election, and because I look people in the eye and I tell them, I tell them, if you did not vote for Donald Trump in that last election, you voted for this mess. And all oh, their eyes roll up in their head and they throw their arms up and all that, but they did. Every one of you did that did not vote for Donald Trump in this past election. Okay, now, now, Chris, what do you want him to run again, though, is the question. Is the question. And I'm like, I don't know. I'm not going to pretend to be smart enough to decide that for Donald Trump. He's a man I would trust to be a kingmaker in the background. I, I totally would. You know? He's so basically, it comes, down, it comes down to him. And, but the kingmaker thing, we've heard that a few times. I think that's intriguing. That's interesting. Chris, thanks for that call. Let's go to another Chris calling from New Jersey, my home state, Hello, Chris. Welcome. Hi. Um, I am a Trump supporter completely and 100 percent. I don't want him to run, though. I think he's got too much baggage. I would love to see him as a 
uh, congressman. He could be the new, better uh, Nancy Pelosi as a congressman. And the overall goal is to win the election. So if he is such a kingmaker here in the Republican Party and he really cares about the nation, I think he can put this together and easily pick um, whoever he would endorse, be it yeah. um, Nancy. I mean, he'd, be, he'd be hugely, hugely influential regardless of what he decides, Chris. But it's an, the word that I've heard here a couple different times is baggage. It keeps coming up, even from people who voted for him twice before. We're almost up on the break, and then we're moving on. But just quickly, Lois in California says she would like him to run only if he can win. John in Florida says Trump should run, but announce after the midterms. Paul in Queens, New York City, says he would get demolished in the debates. Trump would. Jackie in Atlanta would not vote for him. Sam Indianapolis says Trump should not run. Denise in Florida says Trump, yes, he should run. And Ray in Washington, D.C. believes that Trump should run as well. And calls keep coming in. But we are up on a break. And again, moving on to a different topic, but a related one. We'll talk about Florida when we come back on The Guy Benson Show. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Welcome back to The Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson. Our phone number here at the program, 833-456-1300. 833-456-1300. And if you're just joining us, here's the question that I have. And it sort of inspired me yesterday playing a clip of Margaret Thatcher. I was debating with myself, is she maybe my favorite political figure of all time? I'm not really sure. We started talking about it amongst our team and debating a little bit. And I said, you know what, let's ask the audience. I bet you we would get a pretty interesting array of answers. So Josh Holmes in the first hour told us that his answer is Ronald Reagan. Martha McCallum in the last segment said Winston Churchill. If you had to pick the person, the political leader who is your favorite ever, it could be American or not, contemporary or through history, it's sort of a wide open question. Who is your favorite political leader ever and why? 833-456-1300. Toll-free number here at the show. 833-456-1300. There really isn't a right or wrong answer here. It's very personal and subjective. 833-456-1300. The calls are coming in. Let's start in the state of Florida. Charlie, you are first on The Guy Benson Show. Hello. Hey, sir. I enjoy your show when I can listen to it. Um, Thank you. I'm from, I'm from Georgia, so it's not going to be Jimmy Carter, but the state to the north <laughs> would be Tennessee. And I, I can't remember if he was a representative elected or if he was a senator appointed before the 17th Amendment. But that would be James Polk, who was president. And I admire him because he said he was only going to run one term. And he was true to his word, and that is rare in any kind of politics. And Polk did it, you know, this is before the Civil War. So I think he did a fairly good job and you know, of staying true to his word. I admire him for that. You know what, Charlie? I did not expect James Polk to be the first answer that we got on this, but I think it's a good answer. And I've read a few articles from historians recently in the last decade or so about how James Polk actually is now consistently ranked as one of the better presidents in our history because he made a few promises 
said he had a few goals that he was going to try to achieve. He achieved them, and then he stepped away. I think that's a good, interesting answer, Charlie, and I appreciate the phone call. 833-456-1300. 833-456-1300. Your most admired, your favorite political leader ever. Who was it? Why? Give us a call. 833-456-1300. Back to the phones. Let's see. Mark calling from Ohio. Mark, glad you called. Thank you so much for taking my call, and thank you for what you do for America every day. My most honored or respected politician is Ronald Reagan. I worked on Ronald Reagan's first campaign in 1980. The situation felt so much like the situation that we are in today. I admire the fact that Ronald Reagan uh, not only won a tremendous victory in 1980, but he got to Washington and did something about it. He also had the sense to hire great people, delegate, and get the job done. All right, so your answer is the second vote we've gotten for Ronald Reagan. When you worked for him in 1980, how old were you, roughly? I was 18, sir. So your first ever vote was for Reagan for president. That's pretty cool. That is correct. I had voted for George H.W. Bush in the primary in May. Okay, and then you turned over to Team Reagan. He became the nominee. And now, after he served eight years and really cemented a legacy, you're calling in and telling a national audience that Ronald Reagan is your number one of all time. Great call. Good answer. Mark from Ohio. 833-456-1300. Tom, Minnesota, St. Paul, the capital out there. Tom, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity, and I appreciate what you do. I guess I have two. I support Ronald Reagan, who's been mentioned a couple times, but my all-time favorite is Pope John Paul. For over 25 years, he was a world-recognized leader, and he helped facilitate the transformation in Poland from communism. Wow. Okay. So I'm trying to think, would, would the pope count as a political leader as opposed to a religious leader? He certainly had a political component— but it sounds like it's some of his political angling that won the title in your mind. So we'll allow it, Tom. He's a religious leader, clearly. He leads a, a massive global church. But John Paul II famously was instrumental in helping to defeat communism. And he was close with Reagan and with Thatcher, actually. That was actually a big alliance at the time. So out-of-the-box thinking, I like it, Tom. Thanks. 833-456-1300. 833-456-1300. Who is your favorite political leader ever and why? Let's see here. Let's go to Kenyatta in Los Angeles. Am I saying your name right? Absolutely, Guy. I very much enjoy your show. Uh, my favorite political leader would be Mao Zedong. And I know that given uh, demographics of your audience, that's probably uh, quite a shock to some people. However, you did say political leader. I'm not talking about morality or values. What Mao Zedong did was set China uh, uh, on a direction that we now see it uh, uh, in as a world power. So from that, and they've lifted uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people out of poverty. The United States hasn't done that. So... Now that's uh, that's that's why I I, uh, I very much admire him. 
Wow. Okay. I mean, I knew there were some communists in the audience. There have to be, just as, you know, a, a matter of the numbers, but wasn't expecting to get that phone call. And uh, first of all, I appreciate it. Thanks for the phone call. I would just fact check you. The United States and free market capitalism has pulled more people out of poverty than any system ever, especially communism. And Mao is responsible for the deaths of 60 million people. So it'd be like calling up and saying Hitler is your answer to this question and then multiplying the death count by like a factor of what, five, six, seven, something like that. So you're entitled to your opinion. But if you really admire Mao who is a butcher and starved a bunch of people, millions to death. I question the choice. I said there are no right or wrong answers. I guess that's true. It is subjective. In my book, it's a pretty wrong answer, though. 833-456-1300. To Montana we go. Kurt, you are up on The Guy Benson Show. Uh, Harry Truman, just the whistle stop campaign, and I just thought he was – one of the last best presidents. Interesting. Was there any particular thing that he did as president? I know one of the big controversies was dropping the bombs on Japan. He did other things as well. Is there a reason beyond the way he campaigned that makes you vote for Truman? Yeah, didn't he ride on the back of trains? I mean, Told he did. He did. Yeah. And so that was definitely true. He wanted to connect to people. We play a clip here in the commercial break on Fox News Radio online about Truman. He was widely written off as having lost to Dewey, I believe, of New York, a Republican. And I guess Harry Truman got the last laugh in that election. Kurt, thanks for the call. 833-456-1300. 833-456-1300. Your all-time favorite political leader and why donna is in pennsylvania hi donna thanks for listening yes i would have to say gold in my ear when i think about the incredible story of her life with being a housewife and how she reached out to um henry kissinger and it was nixon administration and in my opinion what i've read she pretty much saved israel uh when they were under attack First ever female prime minister of Israel is the fact that she was a trailblazing woman part of your thinking, Donna? Yes. I mean, makes sense. Gold in my ear. Cool answer. Interesting answer. One of the first female leaders in an advanced or Western country ever. So, I mean, absolutely a shatterer of a glass ceiling and a big one, especially in the Middle East. Can you imagine? Thanks for the call, Donna. 833-456-1300. Really interesting calls here. I was worried it was just going to be a bunch of, like, Reagan and Trump back and forth. Nothing wrong with that, if that's your opinion. But we're getting a a pretty interesting array of answers. Favorite political leader ever and why. Bob in Chicago is up on The Guy Benson Show. Bob, what do you think? Uh, Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Basically because uh, uh, his, what do you want to call it, his, uh, uh, I can't think of the word, but... Uh, altruism towards the South after he knew he was going to win the war. Yeah. I, you know, I think it's hard to argue against Lincoln as someone who saved the country, right? Abolishing slavery, winning the Civil War, finding a way to bring us back together, obviously cut down far too soon. Lincoln 
if not the greatest president of all time, no doubt top three, and that will be the case for as long as our country endures, hopefully for many, many years to come. Lincoln is someone that I mentioned when I was teasing this topic. And, Bob, I again, I, I will put two thumbs up to your answer, Abraham Lincoln. 833-456-1300, 833-456-1300. The phones are buzzing. Let's go to Beverly calling from Virginia. Beverly, hello. Hi. Hi. So I want to chime in and say John F. Kennedy. Okay. And why? Um, For he's such a statesman, intelligent, and courage. I think that's fair. He wrote the book, Profiles in Courage. He took a bullet and passed away far too early in his first term. He had so many people admiring him. He, He excited a lot of voters. I know that he was... In sort of modern American history, his election was a huge deal. His assassination is one of those moments that people say they will never forget where they were when it happened. And uh, JFK, I think, is an interesting answer for sure. He was definitely a Democrat, but uh, totally unrecognizable, I would say, compared to today's Democratic Party. But parties change. That's part of it. Beverly, appreciate you being out there. Thank you. 833-456-1300. Your calls continue to stream in here. Toll free, 833-456-1300. I'm going to take more of your answers after this short break. Give us a call. Let us know what you think. The best or, in your mind, most admired political leader ever. It could be an American or not. It can be someone who's on the scene today or not. 833-456-1300. More of your calls right after this. Guy Benson will be right back. We are back on The Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Our phone number is 833-456-1300. Toll free. Your connection here. 833-456-1300. Question on the table is this. If you had to pick one political leader ever who's your favorite, who would it be and why? Let's get back to your calls. Rob in Delaware. Rob, glad you're here. Hey, good afternoon. I say Zelensky. And why? Uh, I mean, just look at how he's united that country and and brought everyone together. To, I mean, he he come off a stand up and put on his turtle shell and he's fighting for his country. Afghanistan yeah. president packed up and booked. Yep, with all the gold and stuff and the cash and got out of there. And Zelensky was given an opportunity by the United States and allies to leave and go sort of lead the country in abstention. And he refused to do it. He stayed in the capital while it was being actively attacked by the Russians. And the Russians are so clearly the aggressors and in the wrong here. And the amount of courage for a young guy with very little political background to be doing what he's doing, I think it's a pretty good vote, especially if you're looking at the moment in time, this era. I think Zelensky is a pretty good vote. Thanks, Rob, for the call out there in Delaware. Let's go to Darren in Michigan. Darren, you're up on The Guy Benson Show. Hi, Guy. You know, I'm going to go with another James. I'm going to say James Madison. Um, I just admire him. He was such a prolific writer, his Federalist Papers, uh, that discussed just such a wide range of topics, everything from inalienable rights to the dangers of tyranny to gun freedoms that we, you know, that we have today due to the Second Amendment. I just think that his writings made up the backbone of much of the amendments that that protect our freedoms today. Yep. I mean— 
the Bill of Rights. I'm a fan. And uh, James Madison, one of the most important founders of this country, as you said, a prolific writer and just invaluable to what we've been able to build here and can hopefully hopefully maintain and continue to build. I I love that answer. James Madison. 833-456-1300-833-456-1300. Kurt is calling from Marietta, Georgia. Kurt, glad you're here. Hey, guy, I love the show. Uh, I love Winston Churchill, but I, I think B.B. Netanyahu, uh, I love the way he does his business. He's, uh, he's diplomatic. He's world class. He'll negotiate. But, you know, at the end of the day, he's going to draw a line put his foot down, and it's Israel first. And I think that's a leader's job, and I just admire the hell out of him for it. You know? Yeah, and he's a very clear communicator as well. I've always enjoyed watching some of his speeches on the world stage where he shows up and he'll tell it exactly how it is or the way he sees it and doesn't really uh, use a lot of flowery language. He cuts right to the point. Even if it's gruff, even if it's tough, he says it. And I think that's an interesting answer for sure. Kurt, thank you for listening. Appreciate it. 833-456-1300. 833-456-1300. Who's your favorite political leader ever and why? Perk is in Maryland. Perk, welcome to the Guy Benson Show. Hey, how you doing, Guy? I've got Very to go well. with uh, George Washington. Um, he's the first political leader ever to give power back to the people. Every a political leader up until that point. Once they had gotten and attained power, they kept it and kept it and kept it. Whereas George Washington saw the potential and said, no, we've got a democracy yep. here. I'm going to give it back. So, I think I mean, it's, a, it's a fabulous answer. And you talk about – and we were talking earlier about Lincoln as one of the greatest presidents ever. Washington has to be right up there, you know, just leading the country to victory over the Brits, no small feat, and then serves two terms and walks away, setting an amazing – precedent that stood for many years then it was eventually enshrined in the constitution thanks for that call 833-456-1300 willie out on the west coast in california willie welcome hey how about nelson mandela and for every reason you can think of good answer i like mandela very brave guy willing to go to prison and never back down in his beliefs and wanting to bring justice and racial equality to a place that did not have it uh, hard to argue there. Nelson Mandela, good answer. 833-456-1300. Let's go to Texas and John. Hi, John. Hi, Guy. How are you? Uh, enjoy Very your well. show. Uh, my, I have a special place in my heart for Ronald Reagan. He was my commander-in-chief while I was served in the Navy, uh, what he was able to accomplish during the Cold War, uh, and uh, peace through strength. But I do, I will have to add that I think there's an argument to be made for the four guys that are that sit on top of Mount Rushmore. All right. I think uh, it's well said. Thank you for your service. And I think if you're serving in the, arms, uh, in the armed forces and you can really admire the person who is the commander in chief, that's that's good. That that probably boosts your morale. And sounds like that was the case for John in Texas. We are almost up on a break. We've got to take it. Then we're moving on. But I'm looking at my board. We have so many calls. We've got to vote for Goldwater. We've got to vote for Rush Limbaugh, a vote for Joe Biden, if you can believe it, Alexander Hamilton, Teddy Roosevelt, and others. I see a fictional character on the board, Archon the Great from the comic books. All right. I didn't say it had to be real. I guess a fictional character. That's an answer, I suppose. 
All right, final hour of the Guy Benson Show is coming up. You do not want to miss it. Miranda Devine is our guest. When we come back, stay tuned. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It is our happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday, the final hour, 5 to 6, is the happy hour. Sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is delicious and refreshing. Give it a shot if you haven't already. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can find out where they're sold as they expand, perhaps to your neck of the woods. You can also order online. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly, 21 plus only. And our website here, the program, GuyBensonShow.com. Available to people of all ages. And we encourage you to check it out. GuyBensonShow.com. You can also get our podcast every day free of charge on demand. Follow us on social media, Twitter and Instagram, at Guy Benson Show. And here in the happy hour, we bring in one of the happiest warriors in Washington, D.C. U.S. Senator Tim Scott, Republican of South Carolina, who is out with a brand new book, America, A Redemption Story, Choosing Hope, Creating Unity. And Senator Scott, it is always a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, guys. Good to be back with you. I hope you enjoyed your dining in South Carolina and specifically Charleston last time we talked. I absolutely did. Thank you for your help with all of that. That reservation, hard to get, but I know a guy, and it really worked out, so I appreciate that. <laughs> Senator, I want to talk about some of the news of the day, but I want to begin and really focus on this book, which I think is an important book because at the bottom of the cover it says, Choosing Hope, Creating Unity. And it really feels like we're in a place as a country where both of those concepts are a bit foreign, at least for a lot of people. And it's been that way for a while. There are a lot of Americans, I would say especially younger Americans, who don't believe this is really a hopeful place for them anymore. And it is certainly not a unified place. And it's hard to sort of chart a path forward where you can imagine us coming back together because things are so polarized so divided. I know you have tried to live this out and set a model in Washington, D.C. during your career. Now you've written a book about your life and your philosophy and your outlook. What informed your decision to write this book and maybe the timing around this book at a moment where I feel like the country could use it, whether they're willing to listen or not? It's important to have it out there, at least from where I sit. Well, Guy, I do think that the, the times in which we live are times of division and polarization in a way that we haven't seen in recent memory. The truth is that when you look back historically, we've been in much more divisive times in our nation's history. And without that perspective, sometimes it feels like there's no hope. But when you understand and appreciate the actual journey of America and you weave that story into your personal pain and, and promise, you find yourself understanding that, yes, it's hard but it will get better. I think about the fact that in, in the 1860s, we had a civil war 
much more divided than we are today. The Jim Crow South in the 1930s, much more divided than we are today. The 1960s and civil rights legislation, much more divided than we are today. Even the Rodney King incident in 1992, much more divided than we are today. But what we've seen because of the American evolution, the American story that does not end, is more people coming together to make sure that there is a level playing field. And unfortunately today, the book American Redemption Story is more important than it used to be, because literally today we're asking ourselves about the Biden administration, someone who ran on being the great uniter. Why is division? It seems to be his trump card, and I literally mean pun intended. There seems to be too much division being pushed forward into the American psyche. I think there's no doubt about that, and it sounds like that influenced your decision to put yourself out there with this book, and you really do to some extent with some of the details that you share that we'll get into here in just a moment. But you ran through some of the historical examples of deeper divisions and perhaps more significant and serious and seemingly irreparable decisions in our past. And I think those are important to remember, important to reflect on, to put our current moment in perspective. On the other hand, there's a lot of people out there I would venture to say, who would either forget that history that you laid out or are ignorant of it, don't even really know about it with any depth. And some of those people might say, okay, this doesn't really resonate with me. Other people might at least intellectually understand the point you're making, but that doesn't make the current moment feel much better to them. Oh, maybe it's been a little worse in the past, but it's still really bad now. And, you know, your focus on the word redemption as inextricable with America, at least that link in your mind, there are a lot of people in America today who seem to believe that this country is not a redemption story, and in fact, it is irredeemable at its core on some level. What is your message to someone who might hold that, I would say, ahistorical view? It's certainly very cynical, and you come at this from a perspective of someone who I'd say is refreshingly not cynical, especially someone in your position. How would you try to engage someone who had that very different view of things? The, the, the foundational truth of America, which is a rock-solid foundation, is that, yes, America had sin. Our original sin was slavery. What did we do in response or reaction to our original sin? We fought a civil war where 600,000-plus American men died over the cause of freedom. 4% of the American male population sacrificed their lives so that this country would remain one nation under God and indivisible. Some of the stories that I talk about in the book is my grandfather's life, 1921, born in the Deep South, a very rural part of South Carolina, Sally, South Carolina. He experienced incredible racism and discrimination, and yet he said to me as a little kid, never, ever become bitter never be a victim. He told me I had a choice. I could be a victim or victorious. He lived long enough to see the arc of this universe bend towards justice, so much so that he continued to preach the message of hope and the message of unity, even though for most of his life he did not experience it. But he had faith in America's future because of the pain and the tragedy of its past. He believed the foundation we needed was going to be built on the shoulders of the greatest generation we'd ever seen. And he was right. 
Senator, we've had you on this show in the aftermath of some of the things that you have done and said where you experienced backlash or spasms, frankly, of bigotry from the other side of the aisle, whether it was your response to President Biden's speech, the State of the Union, whether it was your speech at the Republican convention, when you have your profile raised, and I think that you often step up to the plate and sort of live up to the moment, there are people who feel like because you're conservative and because you're a Republican, you're not really authentically fully black. And they come at you that way in a way that I find very disgusting. And I'm sure it's upsetting to you. You write in this book, America, a Redemption Story, that you define yourself by your faith, by your family, by your friends, not by your race. And I know that there are some identitarian people fixated on identity who would say that is and you fill in the blank with the epithet. That's a sellout mentality or that's privilege for him to set aside his race and focus on these other things. How do you combat that kind of mentality that I think is toxic but certainly has at least a foothold in our society right now? Well, God, one of the challenges of modern America is that the bigotry of the left is condoned by mass media. And so you walk away with this thought that it's okay if you discriminate against the right group of people. That is exactly the opposite story that I tell in my book, America Redemption Story. I literally tell the story of my personal evolution as it relates to interacting with people who did not respect the fact that I was different in high school, literally being bullied or abused by the language or the words chosen by those who hated the fact that I did not walk and toe the line. Good news for me, Guy, is that America, and frankly, the community that I came from, was more interested in teaching me how to think than what to think. Our left liberal elite want to teach us what to think and never how to think. Their process of indoctrination, it is so dangerous and so toxic to the American soul that we have to stand counter to what they're trying to do. I'd say it this way, Guy. The young person in a marginalized community, whether it's a rural white person, an inner city black person, or someone in the Hispanic or Asian community, the one thing we should never tell them is if you step out of what we think you should do, you are ostracized. That is the message that the liberal elite are trying to send to minority kids throughout the country. They hate people who think for themselves. Groupthink is so corrosive on the left, and they target those of us who refuse to embrace their ideology. And that mm. means we are rejected because of our ideology. Yeah, sounds familiar to me. And I appreciate you saying that. And of course, I agree. Our guest is Senator Tim Scott, Republican South Carolina. His new book is America, A Redemption Story. More of that story and this conversation when we come back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Here on the Happy Hour on The Guy Benson Show, we are joined by Tim Scott, U.S. Senator from South Carolina, discussing his new book, America, A Redemption Story. I did not know about this car accident that you were in when you were younger, and it wasn't a fender bender. This was something really scary and serious. Talk about that. You write about it in your book, and how did it impact the trajectory of your life? Well, one of the more painful stories that led to my promise was the truth of my car accident. So Imagine, if you will, Guy, a 
16-year-old driving down the road at 6.30 in the morning, 30-minute drive, just drop your mom off from work. You're sleepy because she woke you up right before you got in the car. And the next thing you know, at 70 miles an hour, you're driving east down on the interstate and you fall asleep for about 15 seconds. You wake up in a panic. You slam the brakes and jerk the steering wheel, which causes the car not to, to, to skid, but to flip into un, oncoming traffic. Literally through both east, 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 la- east lanes and into the median, up in the air, I go through the windshield, holding onto the steering wheel, yelling for hope. That sounds like, Jesus! Uh, coming back in the car, finishing this amazing ride westbound in a ditch, glass, my blood everywhere, and literally surviving that car accident changed the way I saw the world and changed the way I saw you, myself. You thought you were going to die, right? You thought you were dead. I, absolutely. I did. I yelled out, I'm dead, I'm dead. Uh, so it was a scary, scary place to be. But the law enforcement, one of the reasons why when you read my book, you, you see the chapter on honoring the blue, it's because of the amazing response of law enforcement in the midst of an accident back in 1982. They were so gracious, so kind, and so encouraging that my mother was going to be so happy I was alive. I did tell them, guy, you don't know my mama. She's going to kill me. And so literally, (laughs) I have such great respect for law enforcement. But that pain and miserable experience forged me into a different person, and it led me to understand that life was not about football or about me, that service and faith became more ever-present and more important in my life because of that. Had it not been for that accident, I would not be in public service today. Yeah, you would have been pursuing a football career, and that kind of went up in smoke with this accident, put you on a different path. And I think the state of South Carolina, I would say the country, is better off for it. But at the time, you had no idea that that was going to be the case, and it was just a really horrible thing that happened to you that looking back, thank God you survived, it was one of those inflection points in your life Something else that you write about, and I know that politicians write memoirs all the time, all the time, and they talk about their experiences, and sometimes they want to frame their situation as sort of this scrappy underdog story because that suits them politically. But you still kind of airbrush certain things and perhaps sweep certain details or painful memories under the rug or at least tweak them enough where it's still sort of this heroic narrative for the principal, the person writing the book. At some point, it seems like you had to make a decision to get pretty vulnerable and maybe uncomfortable with some of these anecdotes that you share, including this really heartbreaking story about when you and your mother and your family just separated from your father. And I can't imagine that is something that you like to dwell on or think about very often, given how it all went down, let alone share it with the whole country. But you've chosen to do that in this book, America, A Redemption Story. Was that hard for you? Why did you decide to tell that story? Guys, so often in life, you find yourself in heartbreaking situations, and then we see an airbrushing of your life as if hard times weren't that hard, and good times were even better. And one of the things I hope that we want in in, in this country today is authenticity and sincerity. And I sincerely was heartbroken at seven years old, trying to figure out if I would give up Christmases and birthday presents, could I keep my family together? And 
the pain of that past, the misery of that experience shouldn't be sugar-coated. I think it is helpful for the American people to see that life is messy no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter what you're doing, that pain and misery visit us all. And in my life, I learned over a painful seven years that I had to take responsibility for the pieces that were left, forging together a foundation to see a better way and a better future. And that's where I met my mentor, John Monese, a Chick-fil-A operator who really helped me understand that if you take responsibility for yourself, the best is yet to come. If you blame everybody and everything around you, you're probably going to sink into a place of depression and despondency that will not be in your best future's interest. And so life is messy. I do my best to tell the painful, miserable parts of my life so that others who may be there can find hope in their journey. You do a lot of talking and reflecting and almost preaching in a religious sense about the future and looking forward with that optimism, with that hope. And I know that you have something on your plate right now. You're up for re-election in South Carolina, widely expected to win in a romp. You never take anything for granted, obviously. But I would imagine everywhere that you go, because I've witnessed it personally, at least in a couple instances, you have people coming up to you expressing some interest in your political future beyond perhaps the U.S. Senate. 2024 looming, that kind of thing. I'm not asking you to make any sort of big announcement here, although you're welcome to if you want to. But how do you process those kinds of thoughts and considerations and appeals from people? I think one of the greatest blessings on earth is to know that the constituents or your bosses think you're doing a good job. That is a blessing beyond recognition. And I thank God when that happens to me. Second thing I would say is that most often, most people want you to continue doing the good job that you are. And when they come to the conclusion that they want more, they'll ask for more. But for me, instead of thinking about titles or what's next, I have found great success and more importantly, significance by investing myself wholly in the job at hand. And one of the reasons why when I wrote the book, America Redemption Story, I talk in the last chapter about where we will be in 2070. Because I don't want us to get confused with election cycles. I want us to think about the country holistically in a far distant future so that we are responsible for sowing the seeds where others will have the harvest. Well, I think that's well said. In the meantime, Senator, we've got to take a quick break. When we come back, I do want to get to a little bit of news of the day. No shortage of topics. Tim Scott, our guest, Republican of South Carolina in the United States Senate. We'll be right back after this. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. U.S. Senator Tim Scott is our guest here on The Guy Benson Show. He's given us a lot of his time. We're grateful for that. His book that is out now is America, A Redemption Story, Choosing Hope, Creating Opportunity. Now, I do want to flash into the present and talk about a few things that have happened just in the last couple of days, Senator. The Senate passing over the weekend this huge tax and spend bill that the Democrats are calling inflation reduction that Almost no one seems to actually believe that, including Bernie Sanders, who actually admitted it in a floor speech over the weekend. Your thoughts on the sales pitch that they're making to the American people and really the actual impact of this bill that they passed exactly along party lines with zero Republican support. 
Well, guy, one thing you can imagine is I can't tell you how frustrating it is to stay up overnight to see the country lose another $700 billion to the public sector or more uh, in pursuit of what? Inflation reduction? When, in fact, the CBO, Congressional Budget Office, has said very clearly that the impact on inflation is negligible, which means between 0.1 up and 0.1 down, which sounds like to me no actual effect on inflation when Mm – God forbid Bernie Sanders and Ted Cruz and Tim Scott find themselves on the same page that this bill does not impact inflation. That is the wrong direction to go. And so you see the newspapers and the headlines around the country talking about a a green energy plan. Terrible bill. I can't imagine something more dangerous than seeing three letters in my mailbox, IRS, and knowing that they had a six. 100% 100% increase in their budget, hiring 87,000 new agents to once again target not millionaires and billionaires, but according to the Congressional Budget Office, the independent thinker, so to speak, they say the target will be on the backs of people making less than $200,000 a year. We literally, I voted against it, but they passed a bill that now empowers the IRS to target small business owners, family farmers, people of low to moderate income in pursuit of more than $300 billion to give tax subsidies to people making $300,000. It is so wrongheaded, wrongdirected. I'm stunned that people can say something positive about that bill. Why do you think Democrats keep arguing, and what's your response when they say, as they have out loud, that it's not true? They're not going to affect middle class or working class people. It's just a Republican talking point, the massive doubling of the IRS and this huge number of new agents and, and you know, auditors. That's not going to impact people who are making less than four hundred or even $200,000 a year. They say that's not true. Uh, and and your response to that is what? And then the second point that they make, Senator, is, well, if you just are a law-abiding taxpayer, you've got nothing to worry about if the IRS comes knocking. What's the big deal? Well, that's funny. I, I, the, the, that's just comical, <laughs> number one. Number two, I would say that the IRS hunts for tax revenue from the places where there's the least amount of resistance. That means if you are a millionaire and billionaire and you have – a a, a law firm of lawyers defending your tax returns and having that debate, the IRS goes to the lowest hanging fruit. Where's the low hanging fruit? It's small business owners like the one I used to be, who is both the human resource department and the legal department, and I make the widgets too. That person can ill afford to have a whole stable full of lawyers just waiting to get out and, and, and attack back because of the tax code. So there's no doubt that the CBO's estimate of 90% of the revenue being generated under $200,000, those are the reasons why. The second thing I would tell you is that a corporate tax is a pass-through tax, meaning that the people who bear the burden are the employees of that corporation, the stockholders of that corporation, and the consumers who consume the goods at higher prices. Because that tax must be increased in order to see the tax being paid by the corporation that signs the check. If you read my book, America Redemption Story, one of the things you will find out without any question is there's a small business owner 
because we had to do my quarterly 941s. We had to pay my corporate taxes, my local taxes, my state taxes, is that that burden can be job-destroying and investment-stopping. That is a heavy burden to put on a very weak economy that is heading towards a recession. Senator Scott, you've been very generous with your time. Very quickly, your reaction to the Mar-a-Lago raid yesterday. Unprecedented, concerning, stunning, shocking. I was tweeting about this earlier. I can't think of anything more dangerous than a political FBI. And we need to make sure, and I think we'll do that with our oversight authority as we start winning the elections coming in November, we're going to have to make sure that this FBI is apolitical. If you remember, Guy, just last week, Christopher Ray, the director of the FBI, was before the Senate Judiciary Committee because of the way that they have poorly handled, in a very political way, political cases. That is very dangerous for the average citizen in our country when those in power and perhaps one of the most powerful people in the country becomes a target of an investigation. U.S. Senator Tim Scott, my guest. His book is America, A Redemption Story, available everywhere. It's good. I hope you check it out. Senator, thank you so much for your time. We look forward to next time. Thank you, Guy. God bless. If you missed any part of that conversation with Senator Tim Scott about his new book, America, A Redemption Story, and some of the big recent headlines that we've been talking about, you can go back and listen on our podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. The whole interview is there, as is the entire show on the podcast, free of charge, on demand, every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, as promised, a review of last night, hot and humid, muggy evening in D.C., Lady Gaga in town, yours truly in the house. What do we think about it? Some politics got injected in there. Curious Christine has questions. That's all coming up. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show, Tuesday edition. Thank you for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website podcast. Is always free of charge to all of you on demand when the show is over. Last night, Nationals Park in Washington, D.C., Lady Gaga brought her Chromatica Ball Tour to America for the first time. She's been abroad. She played all over Europe. She was in Canada. This was her first show on this tour in the U.S., is my understanding. And at one point, she shouted out, what's up, America, and got a big roar from this absolutely adoring crowd. And it is a very interesting collection of characters who are hardcore Lady Gaga fans, let me tell you that. She also is just an immense talent with so many hits. So I knew probably 70% of the songs. Some were deep tracks from, I guess, the newest album that I hadn't really heard. But it was, as I expected, quite a spectacle. And some of it is weird, or at least very different, from a traditional concert experience. I think that's part of the brand, part of what she was going for, part of what her fans love about her. I enjoyed it. Look, the weather was just awful. No rain, but you almost were praying for rain, for some relief, or just a hint of a breeze somewhere. It just felt like you were standing in an oven. 
And we had a suite. We were invited to a suite. So we actually had an indoor space with air conditioning. And even when I would go in briefly to get a drink or to just cool off, you would cool down, walk right back out, and it's just like this wall would hit you. So we were just gross by the end of the night. There was no getting around it. But a lot of very happy, satisfied customers drenched in sweat walking out of the building after she was done. She played straight through. She had all these video components and pyrotechnics and the band. It wasn't just piped in pop music. There was a band performing. And then she did a lot of piano work herself. There was the main stage and then a secondary stage. So if you can picture sitting behind home plate at a baseball stadium, looking out to center field, that's where the stage was. Out in center field, facing back toward the infield in the grandstand. And then there was a secondary stage right on second base where she made her way at one point through the crowd, then went up these stairs internally. There was a grand piano up there, and she performed quite a lot of the concert toward the middle from there. And I think what was so impressive about her as a performer is with the big, enormous pop music numbers, with all the dancing and all the frills and all the choreography and fireballs flying around, which you could feel. You could feel the heat. We were so far away from the stage, we could feel the heat. I could imagine how hot it must have been closer, especially given the temperature outside. But there was just this sensory overload. And she's belting out every song. But you could say maybe this is a lot of smoke and mirrors and it's a visual experience. Yes, she's singing, but is it a measure of musical talent? And I think there's probably a lot of people who would say the positions in which she was singing, the way she was dancing, absolutely underscore how talented she is. But I think it really became undeniable when it was just her and the piano and her voice. When she sang a number of different songs and... It was just terrific. If you're listening on the broadcast, we bumped in with part of the musical version of Born This Way, one of her biggest hits. She had, maybe my favorite part of the concert was, she had this intimate discussion with the audience where she was giving some of her thoughts on a few things, and then she played sort of like the piano version of an acoustic version of Born This Way, just her and the piano as people soaked it in and sang along, and then she transitioned that into the full-blown pop anthem. But I had never heard this spin on Born This Way before. I was able to get just a little bit of it that I caught on my phone. Here's cut 27 from last night. Huge cheers, sold-out crowd. If you're planning on seeing her on this tour, maybe just plug your ears, earmuffs for a second. And I'd also add, maybe not super kid-friendly. Just one thought on my part. But a couple spoilers. She opened with Bad Romance and then straight into Just Dance and Poker Face, just her original hits. So what a beginning to the show. 
Then she closed with Rain On Me, and her encore was Hold My Hand from the new Top Gun movie, which was awesome. Now, she might mix it up. I don't know if she's doing the same thing at each stop on the tour. And then a bunch of stuff in between. She did that number from A Star Is Born. No Bradley Cooper. Some people were wondering, might he show up? It was just her. It was just really entertaining and fun. She is a performer. It's very visual, but she also just has so much raw musical talent. And she's also classically trained on top of all of it. So I was really happy to be invited, thanks to my cousin Chris, who was able to make it happen. We did not buy our way into a suite. That would have been a bit much uh, for our budget, but I'm glad I was able to go see her. She's someone that I kind of wanted to go see, then here was an opportunity. It presented itself. I jumped at it, and we had a really good, albeit sweaty, time. Now, I was bracing for some politics. Lady Gaga is a leftist. I think that's not really a surprise, certainly on social issues. Her fan base definitely is very left-leaning. And you're in D.C., one of the most Democratic cities in the country. So, unsurprisingly, you were going to get some of that, and there was going to be a big reaction to it, given the milieu inside that stadium and the group of people who would self-select to go to a Lady Gaga concert. She had one little shout-out about gay marriage that got some cheers. She did a tribute on COVID and how difficult COVID has been and many people who were lost. That was nice, not really political at all. She did get into abortion at one point and was kind of vague about it, but clearly came down, unsurprisingly, again, on one side. And at one point, the camera zoomed in on someone in the front row wearing a shirt that was, shall we say, very disparaging of the Supreme Court profanely disparaging, I think is maybe the better way to describe that. And that got a very big cheer from the D.C. Gaga crowd. And she had a few other comments about that. And for the most part, the crowd was very much with her. Not everyone, though. I'm not the type of person who's so triggered that someone disagrees with me, especially some you know big Hollywood entertainer that I'm going to walk out or something like that. But I stood there politely and quietly with my arms crossed as she had her say. She has a right to have her say. It's her platform. It's a free country. And maybe a few of the references that she made I would be more open to, more sympathetic to, but overall the message as a pro-lifer I disagreed with. And I did look around amid the cheering and that kind of thing. I just looked around the stadium, and there noticeably were people not reacting. Men, women just silently standing, listening, taking it in, and not supporting the message because not everyone agrees. She didn't dwell on it forever, which was fine. And I know some of the people that we were in this box with, we didn't know them. A lot of them turned out to be right-leaning just by coincidence. And they said, well, we didn't love that, but look, we're here for Lady Gaga and it's fine. And that's how the evening proceeded. So it was not just like clubbing us over the head with politics all night long. It was pretty limited. All right, Christine, we have a few minutes left here in the segment. I hope I've painted a picture here. Do you have any more questions? Because I know you were extremely curious earlier when we spoke. Boy, did you paint a picture. I mean, you probably answered almost all of my questions I was going to ask you about if she said anything politically and was the crowd, you know, cheering or did they turn on her? Did anybody recognize you? 
Not that I know of. No one came up to me or anything. And there's probably not a massive crossover with the Guy Benson Show audience in that stadium. But you never know. Uh, so, yeah, I, I don't think I got noticed. And that's fine. It was just a night out with Adam and some friends and my cousin. And we had a good time. Was it hard, because you obviously knew of the breaking news last night, was it hard to fully be in the Gaga, you know, immerse yourself in Gaga, knowing that there was breaking news going on last night? Not really. We were actually in the Anheuser-Busch suite, so there was beer. So I had some Bud Light, wanted to enjoy the moment. I knew that the news would still be there when I got home. We didn't have great service anyway, so I just saw the news Before we went to the stadium, I retweeted a few things and then put it on hold and then got home later and went back sort of into news cycle mode. But I had a couple hours off, courtesy of Lady Gaga. Very cool experience. And if you're a fan of hers, obviously you're going to like this tour. You're going to like this show. And even if you're not a fan of hers, you can't really doubt the intensity of her star power and her talent. Even if her persona and her outfits are a little outrageous to you. Anyway, good stuff. We got to run back here tomorrow for the Guy Benson Show at the same time. Same exact place. Hope to talk to you then. Thank you for listening. Have a great night. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.